Good afternoon. I'm Ian Vasquez, director of the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here. At Cato, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can affect uh, policy change, and we try to promote reform through an assortment of ways that bring forth scholarly research in an accessible uh, way to a wide audience. This policy forum is an example of that. Our books, our studies, our appearances in, in the media, conferences, and so on are other examples. And one of the questions we're continuously and continually asking ourselves in our task as intellectual entrepreneurs is how can we be more effective? So when Wayne Layton and Ed Lopez uh, wrote this book that we'll be discussing today, I was quite uh, keen in reading it, since they address the big issue of why does reform happen and when uh, does it happen? This is a complex uh, question that we can all benefit from thinking more uh, clearly about. And it also goes to the matter of our effectiveness here at Cato. Indeed, uh, depending on the issues and, and the times, uh, sometimes we're more effective. Uh, sometimes uh, we feel like we're knocking our heads against the wall on some issues and seeing little progress, even though there can be uh, a pretty compelling reason for a policy to reform and even uh, a wide consensus about that among expert opinion or even the public at large. But of course, Cato's work and that of other think tanks is only one factor that ultimately influences policy change. And our author's book puts into context the intellectual work uh, and that wider context includes politicians and the incentives they face, changes in technology and in public opinion, the rules of the game, the role of purely academic uh, research, and entrepreneurship on the part of uh, uh, people who work on policy. The book counsel counsels us not to dismay. Ideas matter, and sometimes uh, it takes time uh, for those ideas to take root. One of the things that I like about, uh, about this book, and it's, it's called Madman Intellectuals and Academic Scribblers, I will let them explain why that title, is that it has an optimistic outlook. Um, it's not naive to, to uh, political realities, and it spends a lot of time discussing quite well, I think, the key insights of public choice and the power of vested interests and, and so forth. But it, it describes how ideas interact in the real world, and it does it well, of course, for better or for worse. So I'm quite delighted to be able to introduce Wayne and Ed uh, now so that they can explain what they mean by all of this. Our first speaker will be Ed Lopez, who is a professor of economics at, <coughs> and the BB&T Distinguished Professor of Capitalism at Western Carolina University. He's currently the president of the Public Choice Society and is also the regional editor of the Americas of the Journal of Entrepreneurship and Public Policy. And he's also been a uh, he's also been a staff economist at the U.S. Congress and has worked at the Mercatus Center, the Institute for Humane Studies, and has been a resident scholar at the Liberty Fund. Please help me welcome Ed Lopez. Well, thank you very much, Ian, for that warm introduction, and uh, thanks very much to the Cato Institute for providing this forum for us to 
discuss not only our book, but the issues to which it speaks. Um, and as Wayne and I hope to convey, uh, that is a very broad domain. Um, I would also like to thank you, the audience, and those listening and viewing in uh, for spending your time with us today. Um, <clears throat> getting right to the point, as Ian suggested, the central question that we are preoccupied with in this book is uh, what factors drive political change? In particular, when does significant reform, meaning changes in public policies, changes in social institutions, when does that come about? And what is the role of ideas, particularly those people who deal in ideas, in making such reforms happen? With this book, uh, Wayne uh, and I, we want to understand the, this process of reform as it applies broadly to tax policy, to entitlements, to regulations of all sorts, to issues like the drug war, to immigration, and so on. Just about every issue of importance, if you will, in contemporary current human affairs. Our approach is to analyze reform, whether it happens, how it happens, why it happens, as a battle of ideas versus interests. Ideas versus interests, fighting over the rules of the game. We have vested interests defending the status quo. And we have the proponents of different ideas urging for a change. We're not the first economists to frame human affairs in this, as, in this way, as the battle between ideas and interests. In fact, in the final words of his 1936 famous book, The General Theory, John Maynard Keynes says, I am sure that the power of vested interests is vastly exaggerated compared with the gradual encroachment of ideas. Soon or late, it is ideas, not vested interests, which are dangerous for good or evil. So in other words, Keynes here is saying that ideas matter, period. 91 years earlier, another giant in economic thought, John Stuart Mill, took a slightly more conditional approach. He wrote, ideas, unless outward circumstances conspire with them, have in general no very rapid or immediate efficacy in human affairs. But when the right conditions and the right ideas meet, the effect is seldom slow in manifesting itself. So in this sense, one can think of our book as not assuming that it's given that ideas necessarily have consequences. Ideas are not sufficient for political change is another way to say that. They do not inevitably overwhelm the vested interests of the status quo. Instead, we build on Mill's point. We look to both ideas and outward circumstances, those conditions of time and place in any society to understand political change. And this, in these remarks, anticipates the heart of our argument. In the end, what we find is that ideas don't change the world on their own, but only when people who we call political entrepreneurs, it encompasses what Ian was referring to as intellectual entrepreneurs. Wayne will get to that uh, more, more thoroughly in a few moments. Only when those people who we call political entrepreneurs communicate ideas effectively 
and then work to implement those ideas when political opportunity strikes. Again, at any particular time and place in a society. So if you want to think about the takeaway, the takeaway from this talk is political change happens when entrepreneurs exploit areas of weakness in the status quo and then make it in the interests of those in political power to change the rules of the game. Now, to reach that takeaway, our book presents a framework for understanding political change, the process of political change. Wayne will sketch the details. I'll spend a few minutes discussing how our approach is rooted in, but goes beyond public choice theory, what public choice tells us, but also what it leaves unanswered. Consider three questions that anchor our analysis throughout the book and that also lay the foundation for understanding political change. First question, why do democracies generate policies that are wasteful and inefficient? Second, why do such failed policies persist over long periods, even when they are known to be socially wasteful, and even when better alternatives are known to exist? Third, why do some, why do some of these wasteful policies get repealed? such as airline rate and route regulation in the 1970s, while others endure, such as sugar subsidies and tariffs in our own time. On the first two questions, we submit that public choice provides a complete set of answers. These lessons derive from the core insight that incentives matter in politics just as they do everywhere else. Our professor, James M. Buchanan, who passed away at the age of 93 last week, summarized this realistic approach to politics in his 1979 essay, Politics Without Romance. He writes, the romance is gone, perhaps never to be regained. The socialist paradise is lost. Politicians and bureaucrats are seen as ordinary persons, much like the rest of us. And politics is viewed as a set of arrangements, a game, if you will, in which many players with quite disparate objectives, interact so as, to, to, so as to generate a set of outcomes that may not be either internally consistent or efficient by any standards. So getting to this first question that we ask, why do we get inefficient policies? We can rely on this incentives matter, incentives matter approach to politics. In particular, we can rely on the logic of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. So take the sugar program, for example. Here we have a complicated combination of subsidized loan programs, price supports, import controls, and so forth. And they're, they're designed to benefit an estimated 61,000 full-time equivalent workers in the beet and cane sugar growing industry. That number is from a 2006 Commerce Department study that we cite in the book. Meanwhile, about one, one million full-time equivalent workers are employed in <coughs> using industries like food, breakfast cereals, candies, and so forth. And even in the age of Atkins and South Beach and Paleo, and even here on January 17th, where we're probably all trying to stick to our New Year's resolutions, uh, the number of sugar consumers in our society is roughly equivalent to the number of people in our society, about 315. <laughs> Now, suppose the, with the benefit to sugar work growers is about $2 billion per year. This averages out to almost $33,000 per sugar worker per year. 
but the total cost of the program averages out to about $7 per year to the rest of us. This arithmetic translates into political pressures to enact such policies. We have a concentrated interest. They can come to those who, whose hands grip the levers of power in a persuasive way and say, grant us this political favor at little cost to those who, are, who grasp the, the, the levers of political power. Because who among us is going to go and counter this proposal for the uh, proposed gain of $7 each? <clears throat> this is not just with sugar, of course, but with economic regulations, tax policies, the drug war, just about every line item in the government's budget. Concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. So the second question, why do failed policies persist? Here we can turn to Gordon Tulloch, one of the other primary founders of the Public Choice School, and his underrated paper, The Transitional Gains Trap. Tulloch here argues that as soon as a public policy is enacted that imparts some economic gain on some group, people will start investing resources into becoming part of that group. And these investments will become part of the vested interests that guard the status quo. So take the mortgage interest deduction, for example. Or take occupational licensing in fields like legal services that limit supply and therefore increase the prices that attorneys can charge. Notice that the rights to these political favors are tied to the ownership or to the investment in some asset. To practice law, you have to go and get a law degree. You have to pass the bar exam. To qualify for the mortgage interest deduction, you have to purchase a house. Tulloch points out that the policies not only impart economic benefits, but increase the demand for those assets that are tied to the economic benefits in that political favor. So law school becomes very expensive, home prices shoot up, and so forth. In other words, the value of the political favor embodied in that public policy, it becomes capitalized into the market price of those assets that are tied to that policy. This, in turn, translates into political pressures to keep the policy on the books. Imagine if the mortgage interest deduction were repealed, or barriers to entry in legal services were brought down. This would not only remove the existing political favors, but it would also decrease the demand for houses and law degrees. We can expect these groups to lobby hard in protection of those political favors. And in fact, that's what we observe on a regular basis the transitional gains trap. So now moving on to the third question. The problem with this story, with this traditional public choice story, is that we also observe reforms, repeals, in areas that otherwise look like classic cases of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs caught into a transitional gains trap. So for example, starting in the 1970s, there was widespread deregulation of markets. In one industry after another, policymakers found occasion to decrease the role of bureaucracy and rely more instead on greater competition. As we report in the book, the Brookings Institution economist Clifford Winston estimated that in 1977, fully regulated industries accounted for 17% of national output. But by 1988, that share had dropped to 6.6% of national output. The examples aren't limited to deregulation in the, in, the, in the 70s. In the 80s, we also had fundamental income tax reform. Moving to the 90s, we had spectrum license auctions. We had welfare reform. 
and to our north, the Canadians reform their fiscal institutions. Why do wasteful policies sometimes get repealed? What's happening here is that public choice theory is giving us a clear picture of the vested interests at the table. The vested interests side of this battle over institutions. But it's not providing a clear picture of the ideas side of that battle, of the ideas at the table. This is the stepping off point for our book. This is the space that we, uh, our analysis um, seeks to fill and that our framework in the book is designed to understand. And so with that, I thank you again, and I turn the podium over to my co-author, Wayne Lee. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. Uh, Wayne Layton is professor of economics at Francisco Marroquin University in Guatemala. He's also a senior expert at Navigant Economics and the executive director of the Antigua Forum, which is um, a forum that helps high-profile uh, reformers from around the world learn how to achieve uh, market liberal reforms and learn from each other. Wayne served 10 years in senior advisory positions in the U.S. government, including the Federal Communications Commission and the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. Please help me welcome Wayne Layton. Thanks, Ian, and thanks all of you to coming. Um, in our book, Ed and I lay out a very simple framework for understanding political change. We start with the insight that Ed mentioned, that Buchanan's mentioned. Incentives matter. Incentives determine people's behavior. They drive people's behavior. They shape people's behavior. Incentives matter. This very simple insight comes straight out of pretty much every economic textbook, every economic book, every book on economics, from your pop econ, um, undercover economist or Freakonomics, fun to read economics book, to your uh, standard issue, make your eyes glaze over, got to read it as an undergraduate economics textbook. Uh, incentives matter. We all know it. But if incentives determine outcomes, what determines incentives? Where do incentives come from? We say institutions determine or shape incentives. And by institutions, we mean taking and building and using essentially the ideas from uh, Douglas North, the rules of the game, the formal and informal rules of the game in a society. Okay, formal rules, constitutions, uh, laws, policies, that's that which is codified. Informal rules are what you learn from your Sunday school teacher, your football coach. Uh, it's essentially the we don't do that here uh, rule and everything else that you pick up as a function of living in a particular society. Okay, so incentives determine outcomes. Institutions basically shape these incentives we have. So what gives rise to institutions? We say ideas ultimately are what influence the institutions in a society. Not immediately, 
as John Maynard Keynes rightly understood. But when outward circumstances become favorable, as John Stuart Mill explained. When we pair this relationship between ideas and institutions and incentives with the main types of people who bring political change, we have a framework for understanding this process of political change. And this brings us to these players in political change and the title of our book. First, Madmen in Authority. <clears throat> the madmen in authority are politicians, senior government officials, those whose hands grip the levers of political power. They make the rules. And they more or less give the people what they want. What do I mean by that? You gotta be careful. There's only a certain uh, amount of latitude for any president. But essentially, think of it this way. A president in post 9-11 America may take steps, may do things with regards to civil liberties and the like that would not have been tolerated by the American people a generation or two past. And all presidents post the New Deal have attitudes towards entitlements and what government should and should not do and what government should and should not provide that simply weren't uh, the commonly held beliefs of the American people in the 19th century and no president would, would push those ideas as much in the 19th century. So the mammon and authority, to a great extent, are giving the people what they want. And what the people want really matters. And it changes over time. Well, who's influencing that? <clears throat> the next group of characters after mammon and authority the intellectuals. The intellectuals, as we define them in our book, are what High calls traders in ideas. At one point, he refers to secondhand dealers in ideas for intellectuals. Sounds a little disparaging, but you need to think of it as the intellectuals are the people who are newspaper editorialists. They are radio and TV talk show hosts. They are high-level, uh, highly respected preachers, they are novelists, they are movie directors, they trade in ideas, and they sell ideas to the American people. This is very important, or to the people of any society. It's very important. So essentially, the intellectuals are selecting ideas. This is an idea that we should share, I want to share, and I want the people to understand and believe. That idea and that idea and that one, not so much. So I'm gonna grab that idea. Might tweak it a little bit, then I'm going to popularize it. I'm going to sell it to the people. This is a very, very important role in society in terms of influencing public opinion. But importantly, the intellectuals in the Hayekian sense do not originate ideas. That's the role of the academic scribblers. And whether an academic scribbler's idea ever becomes popular, ever, be, ever becomes well-known, this is largely a function of the intellectuals who pick it up and run with it, or not. <clears throat> so this process that I've just described, it, it sounds a little bit top-down. Idea creators with your academic scribblers, and then you have the intellectuals 
picking a few of those ideas and making them popular and disseminating them broadly, and then the madmen in authority essentially just implementing what the people want. Seems very top-down. And yet we say that's not all there is to the story. There is also a bottom-up component in this process of social change. For example, we are all individuals in a society. We are shaped by nature and nurture. Nature, genetic makeup, what kind of people we are, what our anxieties are, our inclinations. And nurture, back to that Sunday school teacher or your football coach, um, and also the Hollywood directors and the novelists and all the people who've been influencing us for many, many years. So we live these experiences as young people, and then after a couple of decades, we have some opinions, and we go vote. We take them out into the world, each of us. So in a society like the United States, you have 300 million plus people, each bringing his or her own experiences to this political discourse, to this discussion, forming public opinion. And at the same time, at the same time we have academic scribblers, and we have intellectuals who are attempting to add to that dialogue, to influence that dialogue. So it's a process, both bottom-up and top-down. So back to our opening question. Why and when does political change take place? And we say it happens when these outward circumstances, to use Mill's term, these outward circumstances are right. And certain individuals, we call them political entrepreneurs, notice an opportunity to act on a particular idea. <clears throat> Using our framework, they notice areas of weakness, or in the book we refer to these as loose spots, in the structure of ideas, and institutions and incentives in a society, and they act. Now, importantly, political entrepreneurs can be madmen or intellectuals or academic scribblers. <clears throat> the madmen, well, that's rather obvious. <clears throat> Public opinion has changed. The politician famously runs to get at the head of the parade, give the people what they want, become a political hero. <clears throat> And hopefully, the madman is looking among the various competing ideas out there and saying, that one, okay, the American people want that, I'm going to popularize it even more, give the people what they want, and become um, a hero at the same time. That's political entrepreneurship. But it can also be political entrepreneurship when practiced by the intellectuals and the academic scribblers. Think of Karl Marx as an academic scribbler. It's definitely an example of someone who understood the conditions in which she lived, time and place, Industrial Revolution, England. His ideas of alienation of labor as a consequence of, alienation of the worker as a consequence of the division of labor, that would not have had meaning three centuries earlier, or perhaps even at the same time in a different country it was not experiencing the Industrial Revolution. So Marx, as a political entrepreneur, sees an opportunity 
to sell a particular idea, a particularly bad idea. He was a political entrepreneur selling a very bad product, but he was an entrepreneur nonetheless. Intellectuals may see an opportunity to sell a particular idea, to popularize a particular idea. Think of Keynes as an academic scribbler and an intellectual coming up with the idea of stimulus in the 1930s. Um, James Buchanan, Richard Wagner referred to Keynes and his followers, the intellectuals who bought into this, as destroying the old-time fiscal religion of balanced budgets. From there, we go to having many, many decades of not only academics, but also intellectuals very much buying into the Keynesian macro policy recommendations. <clears throat> Government should stimulate. And it's with us even today. <clears throat> so often, what we will see when we see really significant reform is multiple layers of interaction. An academic scribbler perhaps dealing with an abstract idea later on, perhaps a generation or two later, perhaps after the academic scribbler is dead. Intellectuals grabbing one idea, popularizing it, working through disparate platforms, through the media, through places like the Cato Institute to disseminate good ideas or bad ones. And then eventually, a madman in authority acting on a changed political environment, a changed public opinion. <clears throat> Lastly, I want to challenge a very common, Ed and I want to challenge a very common idea when we think about political change. And that is that political change requires a crisis. Milton Friedman spoke of that. More recently, Rahm Emanuel spoke of a crisis he wasn't going to let go to waste. It's been with us for a long time, the idea that you need a crisis for political change. And that is true. It is true often that often significant political change comes from a crisis. You could think of the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution, or you could think of the American founders in the American Revolution. At other times, the process is not revolutionary, but more evolutionary. Not born out of a crisis, but a consequence of a nonviolent battle of ideas. We point to a couple of examples in the book. Um, a very clear one is airline deregulation in the 1970s. It was not born necessarily out of a crisis, and we explain the process in the book, but it's essentially a, discuss it's a discussion of <coughs> academics, uh, a discussion among intellectuals, discussion among uh, policy players in DC, uh, Alfred Kahn, Teddy Kennedy, a few other people, but not a massive clamoring of the American people, at least not at first. So this was not a crisis, per se. Similarly, uh, tax reform in the 1980s, not per se, crisis-driven. Um, it is possible, it is common to see significant reform come from crisis. It's not necessary. Um, lastly, I would just simply say, if you think of this process, 
ideas influencing institutions which change the incentives that we all face. And you think of the players involved, both academic scribblers and the intellectuals, and ultimately man-man authority, holding the levers of power, changing policy, changing the rules of the game because that's what the people want. If you apply this framework for understanding political change, it's easier to see when and how significant reforms may come about. And that understanding is valuable for anyone who wants to promote better rules, better policy, or ultimately a better world. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. I'm sure we're going to be interested in hearing what which of those significant reforms that you can see coming around the corner. Our next uh, speaker is our good friend, uh, Fred Smith, who I asked to, to comment on the book uh, for just a few minutes. Fred is the founder and chairman of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and of course, is longtime president up until December of last year, I think? January 1st. Oh, January 1st. Don't push me out any too, too soon. OK. He's also the director of CEI's Center for Advancing Capitalism. He's known for addressing a number of complex issues like the environment and corporate governance. And one of the reasons that we invited him is because he has an optimistic outlook on uh, promoting the case for capitalism in a world where, in which it's constantly under assault. And it's also uh, perhaps appropriate for him to, to give a talk today uh, because, as he reminded me the other day, his very first speech as president of CEI back in the 1980s was at a Cato Institute conference where he spoke on the IMF. And his very first speech, uh, now that he has uh, retired from that position, is again at the Cato Institute. We simply can't seem to get rid of him. Uh, and interestingly, his, his first talk uh, was about the IMF and looking at, uh, at public choice uh, issues related to, to the IMF, and it uh, appears that he's dealing with that issue again today. So welcome, Fred. Thank you. Thank you. Give me some time periods. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's an interesting circuit uh, from uh, policy wonk through a long tenure as a manager and now back to policy wonkdom again. It could be a lot more fun in this world, we'll see. Um, those of you noticed the, um, the, the uh, tag notes in my book illustrated, I did read the book. I like the book. I think it's a very important book. It's mm -hmm. one that everybody should read. And I see it as an attempt by the authors to broaden the discussion about policy change, moving it away from what has been a fairly sterile discussion of economics in its traditional sense to a beginning to put more contextual elements to enrich that debate, moving it back to the political economic, a political economic change, or policy economics again, which is much more in tradition of Adam Smith and the earlier classical liberal periods. Moving away from, I think, the sterility that has so affected economics over the last decade of mathematization back to the rich context that it once had. Um, secondarily, it is, I think, an intent to do that, not just for the experts, but to create a book that would reach out, provide an understanding 
of why political economy is a much more important way of thinking through political change than the old Spider-Man diagrams and so forth, and to make that information available to a larger audience, to try to write a primer that can bring a larger number of people to an understanding of how policy change might happen, can happen, and hopefully bring more people into the reform movement. Uh, the first four chapters, to do that primer status, to build the background for understanding political economics, not just economics, I think does take a, a diversion into philosophy, economics, history, uh, the whole <coughs> things like that. That takes a while. And in the first four chapters, I think, provide a very credible, very quick, I should say, but a very quick and credible attempt to bring people up to speed on those issues. I have very little to say about that. I thought it was an interesting one. It's been a long time since I've reviewed philosophy, and I think more of you would find that interesting, too. Um, the group, the, as he mentioned, the, the themes of the book, the major theme is that ideas have consequences and that uh, incentives matter. Um, I have, I agree in part, and will, as you will see, disagree in part. The challenge, of course, is less about whether ideas have consequences, but whether good ideas have consequences. And I think they have a little less to say about that than they might. Public choice is a, they've taken public choice and enriched it a good bit already. Public choice, in some ways, is a fatalistic view that, of course, we're going to lose. Don't you know the economics is on the other side? <laughs> um, public choice, I have been arguing lately, as I get into it more and more in this new role, has developed an elaborate theory of sin. But it has done very little to give us a positive theory of virtue. Why is it that sometimes good things happen? And when you look around, you realize, despite all of the temptations to be sinful, there's massive amounts of virtue in the capitalist system. Most businesses do not have full-time lobbyists in Washington. Most businessmen do not immediately hire another lobbyist. They hire an engineer. They hire a marketing person. They hire someone else. Why? If public choice is so right, why does anyone do anything except rent-seek? Um, and why an economy of 15, trillion, $16 trillion, why do we spend so very little money on politics? Um, this is what I think David Bowes mentioned, the sort of the public choice paradox. Um, $50 billion maximum, maybe, maybe a few more, a little less. It's not a lot of money when theoretically, according to public choice, we can immediately get rich by just robbing the many and benefiting the few. Other area that is critical, and I agree in part and disagree in part, is Hayek's focus on the that ideas have consequences, the war of ideas. A little word when I this morning I went over to a doctor at a ocular uh, migraine, I guess it was called, and I had my <laughs> eyes dilated. I said, "Don't dilate them too much. I've got to read my notes somehow today." So. Um, Hayek, I think, was, was quite right. Ideas do have consequences. But the question that Hayek, I think, has put too, spent too little time on is, why do bad ideas have so much more consequence than good ideas? It's quite clear that the 20th century was a century of ideas. Communism, fascism, Nazism, sexism, racism, and environmentalism, and an occasional free marketism, but pretty tiny amount. Ideas do have consequences, but that's not very reassuring. Um, why have bad ideas so dominated the scene, and why do they continue to dominate the scene? The optimism I do have, but it's a despairing optimism, is that for the last 13 decades, from 18, 
1880 on, we have seen a continuous shrinkage of liberty in the economic sphere and a continuous expansion of the Leviathan in the political sphere. Hayek also, I think, tends to look as an intellectual and naturally focuses on the positive role, negative role that intellectuals can play. He, I think he omits too quickly the critical role that uh, the business might play, does play in the process, and could play more possibly, possi possibly and the role of politicians. Uh, these are sort of characters brought in, motivated apparently, only by negative incentives and, and ideological. They, the three questions they ask, I think, are the right questions they ask. The first question is, why has there been a growth in Leviathan? And I think they understand a lot of it has to do with economic incentives. But 13 decades is a pretty damn long time. Um, they suggest in the beginning, they're really incidentally not talking about all of American history or world history. They're talking largely about the progressive era in America from 1880 on, which is the our era, so we ought to know that better. Up to that time, we actually had some positive ideas flowing through our society. Um, and their, their explanation let me, is much more complex. There's a book, I have a two hour lecture I could give on this book, but I better start with this one first. Um, the, the progressive era they saw coming at the beginning of the capital, well, the, sort of the fruition of capitalism, creates a massive amount of creative destruction, disruption, and so on. Very, very scary. And we have the stories about it, the, the, the industrial mills, the smokestacks, the whole bit. Dickens writes wonderful stories telling us how horrible it is. No contextual discussion. Later on, of course, Hayek and a few others write capitalism in their story, history, historians. But generally, there's very little understanding of what the preconditions of mankind was before the Industrial Revolution occurred. The effect of that, I think, was basically to create a world in which most of the narratives that informed the public, the citizenry, about the impacts of capitalism were anti-capitalist narratives, implicit and so forth. But the effect was that most people became, came to see the effect of capitalism, economic growth, economic liberty through pink-colored glasses. And not surprisingly, many people became quite anti-market oriented. I think an alternative way of looking at that early uh, change in the way we move from capitalist to anti-capitalist philosophy is what brought by Schumpeter. And in a way, I think a, a more enriched, and they do teach Schumpeter in the book, it, to think through the, the, what happened in the, in the progressive era between, in, a, in a Schumpeterian way. Schumpeter's view is much more, in a way, cynical than Hayek. He, realized, he doesn't see intellectuals as the heroes or even important figures. He sees them, in a sense, as a villain in the piece. His view is the intellectual class in America and the world came to a position of potential power in the late 19th century. They looked around and said, if we're so moral and good, why are they, the entrepreneurial capitalists, getting so rich? They were envious. And then they looked around and said, you know, that's bad. We can get psychological benefits if we denigrate capitalism. And one of the great ways to denigrate capitalism is to expand the moral just role of the state, create a vast mandarin, and as the mandarins, we will have a great political future, power future, and we'll get paid well, too. Schumpeter basically felt that, at least in my interpretation, is that the psychological and economic incentives led the intellectual class very quickly into statism, and certainly the early 20th century in the United States was a period when there were very, very few voices anywhere except status voices in the intellectual community. Um, 
The second, but they nonetheless, they go through and explain, I think, this reasonably well. The first question, why government has grown, is largely a public choice question, imbued with the failure of any intellectual class to emerge that can challenge that perspective. Five minutes, okay. okay. The second one is why, why so little reform? They cover that, I think, pretty well. The transitional gains trap shows you there's a ratchet effect built into it and so forth. The question, though, that I think most motivates us and anyone else, I think, who hopes for a better future for America, is why do we occasionally see glimmers of reform? I'm uh, considerably less optimistic about the reform suggestions they have. I worked on some of those areas. Um, Huttaker, Hendrik Huttaker, who was at the Council of Economic Advisors, pointed out that, uh, gentlemen, gentlemen, let's not be patting ourselves on the back about deregulation. Yes, we've been rolling up the carpet of regulation by the inch behind us, but we've been rolling it out by the yard in front of us. The periods of the 1980s saw some minor deregulatory policies enacted in some parts of the economy, but massively expanded in the economy as a whole. And continued since then. Thatcher and Reagan, we saw it at the time, some of us, naively in retrospect, as the turning of the tide. Now we see them as a high water mark in history. They give two, three examples of what they see as positive reform and one of negative, or negative movement. A welfare reform, airline spectrum transformation, they see as more or less positive. Housing, they see as negative. Um, not much to talk, need to talk about housing issues here with John Allison as their head here. He knows very well it was a rent-seeking phenomenon, and it illustrates how bad policy became even worse policy over time. Um, they move, though, to the spectrum issue and airline issues, and they see no crisis. Well, airline didn't have the crisis. Uh, it was a political entrepreneur, Breyer and, and Kennedy, who saw a way of looking a little bit less knee-jerk liberal. They went out and did it. And there was a lot of economic research at this time in Brookings, prior to the early Brookings um, um, AEI and Chicago School. That, and there was the intrastate experience with Texas and, and uh, California that gave you an empirical example, an easily understood example of what economic liberalization in that sphere might have been. We liberalized it. We got some benefits. But as most of you know, airlines are in, the airline sector, air travel sector, is a Network industry, it has the flows, the airlines themselves, which we liberalized, and the grid, the airports, and the air traffic control system, which we not only did not liberalize, we've increasingly made more and more regulatory. So whatever we gained in one front, we gave a lot of it back in the airport air traffic control government monopolies. Spectrum is a little more difficult. Spectrum, they mentioned no crisis, except there was always the need for more money in government. and liquidating a government asset with no political opposition and lots of rent-seeking opportunities by those who could allocate selectively parts of the spectrum to parts of groups and then play games with reallocating it over time really was a rent-seeking issue. Did freedom expand because of spectrum allocation flexibility? I don't think it expanded. Efficiency gains were realized, but we ended up with even a more for, uh, an even more tumultuous rent-seeking fervor in that area. Welfare, I have not much to say about. Um, the airline area is not the one I would have picked. I would have picked railroads where there was a crisis. They were going bankrupt. And the railroads actually deregulated in a way that is far more compatible with economic liberty. The first six chapters, nonetheless, answer the first two questions well. And the last question, not so well, I think. But then they go as to what is to be done. And let me try to finish with that, because that's a question that I think none of us are fully comfortable with the answers we have today. But it's critical we find them 
if capitalism is survived, is economic liberty is going to be something we might experience in the future. Um, I think we need to enrich the whole debate with much more understanding of Schumpeter. Schumpeter, of course, was even more pessimistic than any of us. He was German. But Schumpeter, nonetheless, did express an understanding, I think, in a much different way, in a much richer way than Hayek did, of how political change occurs. Yes, intellectuals are the purveyors of ideas, but if the intellectual class, I, class interest is statism, why in the name of God would we expect them to pass our ideas along? Well, certainly they didn't when there were no classical liberal intellectuals. But one of the real positive things that's happened in the last decades is that a minority of classical liberal intellectuals, Cato, all of the flowering of Atlas groups around the world, CIs and so forth, are now examples that we're not, we're a minority, but we're certainly not a silent minority. The war of ideas is being waged now. But those ideas still have to reach the citizenry in a democratic market economy, and there is very little ability to do that through an academy that is heavily biased against economic liberty in a media world totally dominated either by crazies on our side or crazies on their side. Uh, Fox News, incidentally, some research we've been doing illustrates that every time Fox News did a particularly virulent attack on Obama, Obama's campaign contributions jumped and his popularity movement went up. We might have actually won the election if there had been no Fox News out there. Uh, <laughs> They talk top down and, and down up. There's a lot to say about that. I think there's still a little too intellectuals respect intellectuals, it's high nature. Um, and therefore, I think we give far too much credit to intellectuals, far too little to the people who actually might be possible communicators. The business community, particularly, is totally left out or largely left out of their equation. Um, the time is up. Let me see. Do I have anything? To do? One little more page. Positive contextual change. <laughs> there is a global web. Oh, Herbert Stein mentioned when something, another optimism, when, when something can't go on forever, it will stop. We are going to have a crisis. And although crisis may not be everything, boy, they can be helpful. We have a shot at changing things dramatically in Europe. We're seeing it at the state level now where pension reform for the first time in history, labor reforms are happening, not because of change in politics or ideas, but because they've got to do something. Um, we need to go on the offense. Uh, my wife has gotten me involved with football lately. Uh, and uh, I've now learned one thing is, no matter how good your defense is, you're not going to win the game unless you can move the ball. And so far, we've illustrated very, very little capacity to move the ball. We have to begin to do that. There's a role there for new alliances, just as they've created on the left, between their intellectual supporters, the status intellectuals dominant, and the entrepreneurial elements of the business community who see the value in rent-seeking. In a world that is half political, half private, there are increasing opportunities to liberate part of the economic terrain and make money doing that. But they need us because we have the idea world, and we need them because they have the communication channels, the resources to make it happen. Baptists and bootleggers is not always going wrong. A creative Baptist and bootlegger group between the wealth-creating sectors of capitalism, entrepreneurial capitalism, and those of us who actually believe in economic wealth and freedom could bring about the kind of changes that they've alluded to in their book. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. We have time now for questions. Uh, if you have a question, raise your hand and uh, please identify yourself. Wait for the microphone, identify yourself, and ask the question. We'll take the first question over here in the aisle, please. 
Hi, I'm Jim Lowen, author of uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, among other things. And as you were, throughout the forum, I was thinking about a woman whose ideas, you knew it need to start over? I was thinking about a woman whose ideas definitely caused a change in public policy, uh, maybe famously, and that would be Jane Jacobs' uh, Death and Life of Great American Cities. And I was trying to fit it into your things, and I couldn't too well, although there was maybe a crisis in what was actually happening in public housing. But other than, and you guys, you use the word crisis uh, in that kind of way. But uh, so, I, so I thought to you, how do you, would you handle uh, Jane Jacobs as, uh, she's maybe both a, uh, what was your phrase for the disembodied academic? There's academic scribbler, yeah, an academic and then scribbler, there's intellectual. And she's maybe also an intellectual. It's uh, hard to say. She wasn't exactly an academic in that she didn't have a, government, a uh, university job most of the time. But anyway, that's nitpicking. How would you how would you handle it? Why did why did she move the debate? Uh, how does that fit your analysis? Let me start. Okay. Um, first of all, I think your your characterization of of Jane Jacobs as both an academic scribbler and an intellectual is probably a fair one. Keep in mind uh, a number of great minds have been both. I mean, Milton Friedman arguably was, was very much both an academic scribbler and intellectual. John Maynard Keynes, uh, an academic scribbler who we know is an intellectual because he once famously said if, if public opinion changed in the wrong direction, it was up to him to change it back. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he had that self-confidence that he could change ideas that clearly and that uh, effectively. So Jane Jacobs, um, I, I'm not terribly familiar with her um, I, I'm, I'm familiar with her work. I'm not familiar with the, the kind of long-run implications and effects of her work, other than I know it has been very, very much accepted among, uh, or at least understood among uh, planners. Uh, of course, a lot of libertarians like her work, but it's broader than that, which is very, very uh, much to her credit. And it has, from there, has been picked up by New York Times writers and, and city planners. and So both your urban planners types and your people who comment on the urban experience, the people who might be writing about urban life in the New Yorker or the New York Times or the Washington Post, et cetera, all these people became familiar with her work over time such that her ideas remain a part of the conversation well after her death. Um, I think that's probably only a partial answer to your question, but I, I think it definitely is the case that she played the role of academic scribbler, idea creator, and idea disseminator, and other people grabbed it, other intellectuals grabbed it, and disseminated it much, much more. <clears throat> I'm, I'm having trouble hearing. I, I thought you had kind of an economic theory about all this, that it has to fit in with certain economic interests one way or the other, or did I miss? All right, well, I could comment a bit on that. Whatever, and I think Jane Jacobs was a wonderful intellectual force for creative housing, urban policies, but anyone who looks at the American city today would not say that her ideas prevailed. Some of her ideas at the margin influenced the planners, but the, the economic forces, the unions, the awarding of contracts has proceeded pretty much as corruptly today as, as it ever has. Now, I'm from Louisiana, a state, as you know, that does not tolerate corruption. We insist upon it. But um, it does lead you to a cynicism that I think Jane Jacobs shared, actually. I think another element in play with the um, efficacy of Jane Jacobs is, in reference to what Fred said, she was better on defense than on offense. Yeah. And one of the reasons is because her ideas on defense were easy to relate to by wide 
um, spread um, in, in widespread circles of society. So, for example, you could see around your corner or on your doorstep the failures of um, urban renewal programs. And you have even bad men in authority admitting to them. And the former mayor, longtime mayor of New Haven, Connecticut, which led the country in dollars of urban renewal planning for decades, uh, confessed to Time magazine, if New Haven is a model city, you know, God help America's cities. Mm. And so that message is uh, one that has broad um, appeal, but also it can be easily related to in a broad way. Okay, the question up front here. I'm Jim Pinkerton with <clears throat> Fox News, and um, <laughs> <laughs> my, oh, <damn. laughs> my question, though, is, I guess, especially since Professor Layton uh, works in Latin America, and, and obviously the global Hispanic issues are important, what's the state of play in Latin America on these sort of issues, especially Hernando de Soto, who I notice is, is not in the index? The state of play of the diffusion of ideas? Battle of ideas. <clears throat> uh, the, actually, let me take a, a step back. The battle of ideas worldwide is much more, gives us much more reason for optimism than it did 50 years ago. So when Hayek was writing The Intellectuals and Socialism, uh, you could count on, on, I take it more in a few, ha uh, a few hands, but it's a very small number of think tanks around the world. Now, uh, they're, they're, the number of think tanks, the number of websites, the number of groups that are thinking about uh, political change around the world are huge. The Atlas Institute, obviously here in DC, uh, connects a lot of these people in, in many ways. And there are many such groups in Latin America. Uh, there are free market think tanks in, in a number of countries in Latin America. And uh, my university in Guatemala, Francisco Marroquin University is not only uh, a leader in, in the debate in Guatemala, but throughout Latin America, and, and I would argue it's a, it's a beacon around the world. Having said that, what is the state of the debate on ideas in Latin America today? Um, it's, it's fairly poor. You have the experience in Chile, which uh, a lot of people, um, well, let's put it this way, in Chile, they never really decided to destroy the reforms they had put in place, both from the left and the right, politicians of the future would maintain those reforms. But in so many other countries in Latin America, from you know, Argentina, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Ecuador, Bolivia, and on and on and on, uh, the populist mindset, if you will, uh, is alive and well. So it's a battle of ideas that um, it's not being won in, in many, many countries. I would also just add that uh, that's one more reason why uh, you need not only uh, a vigorous uh, press that's challenging these, these people, but also experiments in liberty, such as, as free cities. If we could have a few experiments like that in Latin America, um, where you could establish a Hong Kong or a Singapore-like um, group, small development, I think that would significantly change the debate. But where we are right now is uh, many, many countries where many, many people um, accept this rather populist ideology, and that means those of us who are engaging in the war of ideas have a long ways to go. One thing there, too, is to recognize that although the, the number of our groups has massively increased, I mentioned that myself, but there's a historian who was discussing the Civil War about why Lee lost at Gettysburg, the failure of Stuart to be there running around, 
um, long street coming up too slowly, the failure to take big top, etc. Holds 80 pages or so of Wiley lost. He never mentioned the Northern Army. Uh, one of the real challenges is, is that we've grown, but I don't think anyone has any idea of the, of the massive expansion of status groups around the world, everywhere. Uh, but not only that, also, how many of, them, of the major businesses in America have for all profitable purposes said, mea culpa, mea culpa, and thrown in with them? Corporate social responsibility, Davos. We now have a situation, whatever the balance of forces was at the beginning of 1880, it's vastly worse today. It doesn't mean we lose, but let's not forget that often the, big, the guys with the big battalions win no matter how good the ideas are with the little guys. Uh, let me just, I, I want to add a note of optimism about <laughs> all of this with respect to your question on Latin America. I'm actually optimistic uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, the, the populist experiment in Venezuela, which is what everybody is paying attention to, is falling apart. And everybody is paying attention to, to that. At the same time, you have increasing number of countries that are becoming success stories or successful market economies. Not just Chile, but Peru. Colombia's head in that direction. Mexico is succeeding. There are some Central American uh, countries that have done well. You have the entire uh, Pacific coast, with a couple of exceptions, that have trade, free trade agreements with the United States. There's a growing middle class. That also means a, a change in cultural values that, that are taking place. These are reasons for optimism. And there is no question that in Latin America today, as compared to 10 years ago, or even uh, certainly 20 years ago, there's a much better and deeper understanding among the elite about uh, public policy issues and uh, the ideas of the free society. And uh, if you go to places like Peru, a lot of those people working in government, outside of government, newspapers and so on, have an influence on the way that things are going. So uh, unfortunately in the region, it always does seem to be that crisis is what drives reform. And all of the big reforms, or most of them in the, in the region over the past uh, several decades, um, have happened because of a crisis. I'm very much looking forward to the crisis in populism, which is coming. It's going to happen in Argentina. It's happening now in, in Venezuela. It's going to happen in Cuba when, when Fidel Castro dies. This is all good news. One, one additional point there, a strategic one. If we are outnumbered, as Fred says, if classical liberals in the world of ideas is outnumbered, then it behooves classical liberals to essentially pick their fights or try to specialize in areas that are very high leverage areas. In Latin America, one of the things that is salient but also extremely disruptive is the drug war, of course. Um, it's hard to get, it's hard to pierce through to the real issues when you have violence and when you have um, ossified interests around maintaining the environment that produces those violent, that violence. So a high leverage opportunity would be to continue the war of ideas on this particular issue. And as more, as, as the case for that idea gets um, uh, more, bro more broadly accepted, um, this would be an area that would make other uh, changes in Latin America, other beneficial reforms, more likely, more easy to happen. Uh, yeah, question in the back there? Right there, yeah. Wait, wait for the microphone, please. My name's Harry David. I'm working at the Institute for Humane Studies, and I have a question about certain circumstances in which uh, these ideas might not be relevant. Um, 
in particular, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about um, whether people are open to persuasion or not. And so you can think of two different sorts of, 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 of political entrepreneurs, um, and I'll illustrate it in, 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 in prohibition, the repeal of prohibition, where there's certain women's groups and others who who are are, are, are are persuaded by the failure that they see around them to change their minds about about whether prohibition is good, and then there's there's another women's group that 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 just maintains based on their prior religious beliefs that that prohibition still is a success. Um, so I'm I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about wh whether these I this thesis is 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 irrelevant in certain circumstances if where people are too dogmatic to to, to be persuaded. That's um, an area that we, neither of us have gone into in this discussion. There's a concept called, how is it, what, what explains the opinions that the citizenry hold about things they don't think about? Prohibition, trade with China, everything else, drug wars. There's a tendency in, in the debate of intellectuals to discuss education and informed decision making, but most people have real lives. They don't go to Cato forums, they don't read white papers, and they sure as hell aren't gonna spend much time about things they can't do much about. They've got a busy life already. Those people nonetheless will have opinions that will shape the spectrum of the politically possible. And the question is, the challenge is, how does one reach people of like that? And there's a whole literature about that, one of which I find simple is, you've got to show people that our policies are compatible with their values. Not necessarily the only policies, but compatible. And that is a very difficult thing to do without having a communication channel big enough to reach them. With the media closed to the other side, not to our side, and with the academic world for at least the next decade or so locked up in status enclaves, we have very little ways of doing that unless we can persuade business and so forth. That's why it's so encouraging that books are coming out now not very great books totally yet, but The Conscious Capitalism that John Mackey's just published, the earlier Creative Capitalism book and ideas that Bill Gates, business then are recognizing that if people have contempt for them, their, their economic as well as their political future is hard, but we don't work with the business community very much. They don't work with us very much. The other side works hand in glove, the trial lawyers and the environmentalists, and I think that mutual contempt that we in the intellectual community and they in the business, entrepreneurial business community, not contempt, but lack of understanding has weakened our ability to change things very much so. I think if there are uh, reasons for optimism, it is in the, in the, that the, there are, there's not one single um, unified view, if you will, in the, in the uh, realm within which intellectuals um, um, operate. There's, if you think of intellectuals as being in competition with each other, then the marketplace for ideas is far more competitive now than in 1949 when Hayek wrote his essay, The Intellectuals and Socialism. Um, that's a cause for optimism. The cause for pessimism is exactly what Fred was saying, is how do individuals select and process the ideas that are coming at them? There's a, quite a bit of work done in behavioral uh, uh, social sciences that, uh, that suggests there are confirmation biases and status quo biases, and people tend to look in terms of simple narratives of uh, good versus bad, and what are your intentions? Well, um, Jim Buchanan wrote a paper in the year 2000 called Saving the Soul of Classical Liberalism, where he essentially poses these questions. And Dwight Lee wrote a paper in response that was called Economics with Romance. 
the idea of, of Dwight Lee's paper was to demonstrate in narrative storytelling way, what are the heroic entrepreneurship stories of capitalism, of free markets, of production, of increasing value in society. So back to the defense offense frame, if you think of politics without, politics without romance as a defensive argument, economics with romance would be an offensive argument. Yes, in the back there. Thank you. My name is Catherine Metris. And the issue that's always most on my mind and heart is the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And this leads perfectly from what you were just talking about, about appealing to people's values and so on. It's been interesting. There's been an evolution over the past 10 years where 10 years ago, 70% of people felt that what Israel was doing reflected their values, and 30% felt that the Palestinians did. Now it's about 60-40. And I would expect in 10 years from now, it'll be 50-50. My question is, what for those of us who are concerned about supporting the Palestinians' quest for human rights and freedom, what can we do in the face of such an entrenched lobby? And, and you were starting to address that question, appealing to the public. I personally, in my own journey, I started off in government thinking, you have to change things from the inside. Gave up on that. Then I was in nonprofits. Then I decided, no, they're too weak. Now my theory is media. We need a film, we need a blockbuster film that shows people um, you know, the, the beauty and um, the value of what the Palestinians are, are doing to stand up for themselves, um, their quest for freedom. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I don't think, well, I don't think that's communicating. Look, it's a big issue that was not part of this book and not our comments. But the question of how you legitimize an option, like Palestinian liberation and so on, is not, I think, to say that the goal is to persuade everyone that you're right. Your goal, I think, is to persuade people that there is a path to a more, a more balanced, arguably, treatment of the Palestine-Israeli debate than we've seen today by the United States and elsewhere. And to do that, you have to use narratives that can reach the public. I don't think the kind of blockbuster film on either side, like Frack Nation or Gas, what was it called? Gas, the, there are a lot of movies that go out there and try to beat you over the head that we're right and they're wrong. I think that's not the right approach. You're trying to find a way that shows to others that you care about their values. They don't care what you know about the reality of Palestine or anything else unless you can show them you care. And you care about both sides, the Israeli side of this debate and the Palestinian side of the debate, and find some way of explaining a, a process that might lead both sides to think, well, it's not my preferred solution, but it might be one that I could live with, as I see it. Real quick, on, uh, on Fred's point about the importance of the intellectuals, I want to go back to our, the framework we discussed is both bottom-up and top-down. So the bottom-up element implies that the people are living a certain experience, they have this experience, and the intellectuals who wish to communicate their messages have to take this into consideration. They have to keep in mind what people, what they're, back to the previous question, what people's uh, religious preferences are and what they've experienced growing up, what they've lived, et cetera. As far as once you're in an election, you're trying to sell this message, just to get an idea as to how important um, the media can be, consider the current debate about this movie, Zero Dark Thirty. Why is it coming up again and again in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and on and on and on? It's because they portray torture in a particular way, and there's a discussion about the implications of that for the policy of the United States. Well, why? Well, because people watch movies like this, 
They watch movies by Steven Spielberg. They watch movies that are the, the most popular movies. And this forms their opinion of how things are, how the world really works. It has a tremendous influence. This is why movie directors and extremely um, successful novelists are such politically powerful individuals, they, while they can affect political change so very, very much. Okay. Take a question here in the aisle. Hi, Clint Townsend with Students for Liberty. Um, Thomas Jefferson famously said that the natural course of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain. And I understand that there's public choice um, to explain that, but also I think there's a, um, you know, there's elements of human nature that um, go a long way in explaining, um, you know, why we get certain outcomes. So how does your analysis um, explain the role of human nature in um, affecting political change. And I'd just like to say, Mr. Smith, your um, video from CEI on uh, the iPencil series was an ex ex excellent example of um, intellectual entrepreneurism. So thanks a lot. We all want to do better. I think there's no doubt on our battle line. <laughs> Anybody want that's a that's a question we we grapple with Wayne and I in our in our in our work process. Um, we anchor ourselves to um, the the um, form mode of social science within which we're trained and within which we do research, and that is public choice theory. Um, public choice theory, with the passing of recent passing of Jim Buchanan, it's important to recognize that it wasn't a 20th, 20th century phenomenon in and of its own right and of itself. It was a rediscovery of, in, of Scottish Enlightenment political economy. Jim Buchanan is straight, uh, uh, straightforward and upfront with that. Um, he's also upfront with uh, having, uh, in the calculus of consent, having formalized uh, a lot of James Madison's um, political thinking. And so what I'm getting at here is that if, it's a, if the question is about human nature, then we have to understand that the human nature has a combination, each of us has a combination of uh, self-interested uh, motives as well as uh, benevolent motives. And the question then is to think about it in a social science way of what are, the, what are the rules of the game? What are the institutional arrangements that accentuate or that bring to the fore those um, uh, other interested or other regarding types of behavior, even though we have to assume that people are going to be acting in, out of their own self-interest? That's stating things generally, but I think the question um, is sort of commensurate in a, in a general way as well. There is, you know, a literature that um, the cultural, going beyond economics, cultural value theory, which suggests that our man's prehistory leads one to an element of fatalism, don't fight City Hall, an element of work all for one, one for all, tribal egalitarianism, an element of let the right people, the authorities decide, an element of hierarchy, and an element of I want to be free to do what I want to do, the individualist element of today. All of those values are perfectly legitimate in some ways, and all of us share them to various degrees. And my view is that we have, as, as libertarians, tended to be, talk freedom, freedom, freedom as though it was the only value that anyone should even think about. And we've failed to show others that whereas freedom may not be their highest value, a, a freedom-enhancing policy might be totally compatible or acceptable to their values. And the classic example is Catholics and Protestants had different value positions. And in Europe, they tried to resolve it 
under the institutional rules of the game were you were the religion of your, of your leader. And that led to the religious wars. In America, we, in a sense, privatized that value debate, moved it into the private sphere. We didn't denigrate Catholicism or Protestantism, but we found a policy that allowed those value disparities now to interact in a much more cooperative, positive way. And I think, in a way, all of our challenges are the ways of moving value debates from the fights we see today in the Tea Party and the Occupy movement to and institutional reforms that allow those issues to be, we can still fight, but we don't have to kill each other. Real, real quickly, there's a reason why Ed and I use the term framework for what we're proposing here. Uh, it's not some grand theory. It's because with the framework, there's room for additional understanding, especially from, to address your question and a previous question, evolutionary psychology, why humans are the way they are, how they've evolved, and how that influences the way they grapple with ideas. So there's plenty of room for adding that within our framework, absolutely. We have time for at least two questions, and let's take one here uh, from Roger Pilon and take another question at the same time in the, in the back uh, there, please. Yes, Roger Pilon at the Cato Institute. I want to just pick up on what Fred was just saying. Does your book go into any of the cultural preconditions such that, you know, there are cultures that uh, tend to be more receptive to rational argument than others? Um, I have in mind, for example, the last election where it seems that we're going in the wrong direction uh, and um, the people are willing to buy almost anything uh, that this man says. And so I wonder if you do go into that because uh, Ian was talking about the situation in Latin America where we've got some cultures that seem to be moving in the right direction, others that are not. These preconditions to that. Let's take a question in the, in the <coughs> back uh, too, please. Can we take that question over there in the back, please? Yes. Thank you. My name is uh, Paula Gordon, and uh, I have a website, a brand new website, among other websites, called uh, gordonhumankind.com. I want to mention yesterday something very special happened um, that I think um, is um, going to be Extremely. Could you speak up just a little oh, bit, please? Okay. And, uh, and, and we're, we're running short on time, right, so make it, right. make it brief, please. Uh, yesterday, the Global Futures Intelligence System of the Millennium Project was launched. And I had the privilege of having the first paper, one of the first papers on that website. It's also on my website called uh, GordonHumankind.com. Uh, the name of the paper is Wishes for the Future. Which is, which is for the family of humankind. The reason I think this is important is that it is a means of um, the, the, the uh, global futures intelligence system is a means for um, focusing in a virtual way uh, globally on uh, value issues and as well as research into all the fundamental issues that we deal with today in the world. I'd like to mention that this paper is sort of the essence of my dissertation, which was on public... Could you, could, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but we are running... Uh, could you get to your question, please? All right. The question is, um, that I think that hasn't been explored mo uh, fully enough here, is um, what are the basic underlying values and assumptions, belief systems, of the public choice system and of all the other systems that we're dealing with? And perhaps if we overlooked... Uh, a more fundamental humanistic um, uh, 
approach that one could find in uh, Abraham Maslow's uh, uh, hierarchy of needs okay. theory. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. Well, that's a gigantic question, as you must realize. Um, there's a tremendous amount, well, in a way, they've laid out the framework. I think it, a lot, this, remember, this is a relatively short book, a lot in it already, but the idea that the word of ideas is essentially among those who believe in ideas and believe and give credibility to rational thinking, their emotions and everything else. But effectively, in that world, you can expect people to listen to argumentation, intellectual argumentation, rational argument. But most people aren't, in that sense, intellectuals. They have real lives and they, they're affected by politics, but they don't get involved in any detail. They, there's too much to read on any issue on both sides, and their power to do anything about is too low. So their opinions are going to be shaped, as you suggest, by other things other than a rational decision, this is right, this is wrong. And those, I think, are the things we've alluded to, the creative narratives that we, that they produce, that we, and whether those narratives are given in a format that reaches them, the channel of communication, whether those narratives relate to the values that is first, the heterogeneous values of an American population, not just Maslowian, lots of other ways of classifying it, and then whether or not the policies we have then appear compatible with their values. We're not going to get agreement on everything, but all we really need is to agree that the ideas we, that society has that are economic, we need a society that is tolerant of economic liberalism, not necessarily a society of economic liberals. And that challenge is different in the intellectual world. We do want a world in a way like that. And the popular world, the citizenry world, which in a democracy, if we, if we, if we're, logic's for losers in politics, and I don't think we realize that all the time. To Roger's question, the way that we treat culture in the book is not um, to essentially to draw uh, geographical boundaries around it. Uh, we treat culture as information and experience uh, that a society um, essentially shares. Um, and we can go we can go into that for some little bit, but I just would like to illustrate it by one uh, well-known example. And if the question is, are some cultures less um, receptive to rational thought than others, a culture can become less receptive to rational thought during certain types of uh, experiences and the information Crisis. flows that result from that. So for example, in the immediate wake of the attacks of 9-11, our society was not very open to rational thought. We passed the uh, legislation that followed from that very, very quickly without much rational thought that went into it. Yeah, and other, in response to other crises yeah. as well. Yeah. Our focus is very much US-based, uh, but it, the application and the framework would go to other countries as well. And, and with regard to culture, I would just second Ed's point and, and also add, um, as I mentioned, it's important to keep a perspective that is not just simply looking at political change as revolutionary, but also as evolutionary. So the culture, it can evolve over time. Why? Well, that goes back to the influence of the academic scribblers and the intellectuals who are changing the way people think and their attitudes, beliefs, their opinions. And then those over time can fundamentally change the culture. I mean, uh, and it, obviously this includes the preachers as well but it includes the movie directors and editorialists and on. That's why the, this group of intellectuals is so terribly important and the academic scribblers who provide the ideas that they, that they eventually try to sell because as the public opinion uh, buys into and adopts these beliefs as their own, uh, public opinion changes and the society and the culture and everything else change as well. 
what to those of you who have listened to this debate, they've written a book that opens a door to a broader discussion of what makes political reform possible, moved it beyond sort of the narrow concept of just self-interest to a richer debate. There's a lot of things that I think all of us would like to add to that book, but they wrote their book. It's our challenge to write more ourselves. So I like the book. I think you ought all to read it. Sir. Roger, uh, th uh, <clears throat> one of the things that's true about Latin America and I think is true about cultures around the world, generally speaking, is that public opinion, uh, that the public usually holds very contradictory views and that our job is to appeal to the common sense of, uh, of people. Typically, that's successful in, in Latin America, at least, and in the places that I've been around the world. You can ask the same person, do you think that the government should take care of the elderly or the sick? And they'll say yes. But if you go from the abstract into the concrete, do you think that if politicians were given X amount of dollars, millions of dollars to do this, it would be a good idea? They'll say no. The very same person will say no, because that relates to their direct experience. Populists do the former. Successful market liberals appeal to common sense based on direct experience. And I think we need to be doing a lot more of that around the world. Thanks very much. Thank uh, help me in uh, thanking our, our scholars today.